Welcome to Picked Voices, our podcast series where we interview notable thinkers associated with the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. In these difficult days of the coronavirus pandemic, we remain committed to support the Picked community through various forms of online outreach. And while we reject online teaching, since we believe critical and creative thinking best happens face-to-face, we hope our podcasts, social media campaigns, and other online offerings can help bridge the gap until we welcome you in person at our courses once again. My name is Avery Mercers, and today I'm talking to Christoph Van Houten, a picked core faculty member whose teaching and research focuses on continental philosophy, especially philosophy of religion. Christoph, most of your current work is on what you call the archaeology of forgetting concepts, where you analyze concepts that risk falling into obscurity or are only poorly understood and probe their relevance for their for the contemporary world. One of these concepts is limbo, which in your 2018 book Limbo Reapplied, you link with another concept we are all too familiar with, namely crisis. In today's world, all fields of human endeavor are routinely characterized by crisis. From the economic and political spheres to culture, arts, and education, including humanities education, which is so strongly emphasized here at PICT. In fact, you don't consider crisis to be a limited and temporary occurrence at all, but rather one of the main features of modernity. Could you elaborate on what you mean by this conception of perennial crisis? Yes, um, hello, Avrim, and thanks for having me here. Um, this is quite a complex question, so I'll try to respond in accumulative steps. Um, I, I do actually believe that crisis is, uh, or at least was understood, as being limited and being temporal. And my point is not that it, it, it I don't understand it like that anymore, but that it is being used, uh, that it isn't being used anymore in this way. And I think this is highly problematic for a, a variety of reasons. Um, the first thing, however, that needs to be mentioned is that crisis uh, operates, at least crisis how it used to be understood, operates along the regular lines of everyday experience of time. So uh, along the regular temporal divisions uh, of time, that is past, present and future. And the concept of crisis situates exact, exactly itself in the category of the present. Uh, this might seem complicated, but it actually isn't. If I were to use the uh, one of the most typical examples that was uh, in, in that can be found in medicine, a person gets sick, then there is the moment of crisis, which is the present, and then he heals or he dies. So the moment of crisis, and a crisis is always just a moment, plays it, itself out in a very restricted way, in, that is temporarily speaking. And this is also how crisis was understood, etymologically speaking, and also historically. It derives, in fact, from the Greek krino, which meant to judge, to sift, or to decide. And when it was used in various and different worlds of, for example, medicine, religion, politics, and law, in all these fields, crisis was always understood, and it comported always two basic things. First, it always implied a decision, or a judging, or a sifting between two irrevocable and definite alternatives. And secondly, it always operated, and this is the point of your question, it always operated in a strictly limited regime of time, the time of the present, a time which is always slipping away as we experience every second, as we always experience in, 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 in our lives. The crisis in, in, in the disease, as I already said, was always that topical moment uh, where one died or healed, 
and a judicial judgment or crisis always had a direct implication, be it either if you were guilty or not. So etymologically and historically speaking, a crisis always operates on these limited uh, time frames. Now, if then I were to go to a second step, there is, however, something in the operativity of crisis that can allow for it to start functioning in a different way. And considering crisis meant judging or deciding or shifting, when this deciding or judging takes longer than expected, for example, time, the time of the crisis becomes uh, more dreadful. It becomes extended. It becomes longer. I remember there was this joke that was recently launched in, in this pandemic time. Um, whilst we were still in lockdown and, and we weren't talking about the second phase yet, that somebody had written that the year 2020, uh, February, in February of the year 2020, it counted 29 days because it was a leap year in normal times. But because of this corona crisis, these 29 days were followed not by 30 days, but by 300 days in March and five years in April. Because there was no decision as to the durability of the lock time, time simply slowed down. And this is what this joke was aiming for. The first 30 days became 300, and then the next were becoming almost, they were felt as if they were five years. So when somebody halters in the regular timeline, to which also crisis time normally answers, something happens not to the idea or concept of crisis, but to time, to the normal sequentiality of time, which somehow slows down or even comes to a halt. At time becomes slow. The joke I just mentioned already speaks volumes, but we are, I think we all know this perfectly well in, in our everyday feelings. When we have something important for us to do, five minutes can last very, very long and they feel as if it lasts for centuries. Now, crisis time is also time that is always important for us. And it is, in fact, decisional time, judging time. So basically, they are the most important and the most importantly human periods of time. So for as much as the crisis generally follows regular time experience, normal temporality, crisis moments do have the potentiality to paradoxically put the moment of crisis into a slowdown or even into a stall. And this again is very clear today. Our pandemic time, this crisis has slowed time down. Now the slowing down can be caused by the difficulty of the crisis, that is by the crisis situation itself, if it's very complex and difficult to resolve, but it can also be man-made, this relenting and this slowing down of time. Now, if the slowing down of time is prolonged, either because of the crisis is so complex or because we refuse to judge or decide as humans, then this crisis can become perennial. And although this idea of a perennial, perennial crisis has, be, has come to the surface in the past decade, I think that it, it is one of the formative and, and, and consecutive issues that actually uh, forms our whole modernity. So this idea of a perennial crisis, although it is rather new in its discovery, I think it's actually a basic structure of our modern times. Uh, Rousseau, for example, the, who has often been called the father of modernity, prophetic, prophetically said that he saw a consecutiveness of crises coming humanity's way when he wrote his uh, Emile. And if one looks also at another paradigmatic program of modernity, that is Kant's What is Enlightenment, then one can see perfectly well how the call for majority, which requires and always presents majority out of which it needs to grow, this can also lead to a continuation, even to a continuing crisis itself. So 
if I were to conclude, and I hope this all made sense, this, this, uh, these three steps, um, although the concept of crisis is etymologically and historically one that comports a limited timeliness, in certain times, this limitedness can be paradoxically extended and it can be extended eternally or perennially, and, or at least until uh, further notice, but sometimes no notice ever comes. So this would mean that one would be living in perennial crisis. Uh, so in the in, in the ongoing pandemic, we have seen countless media referring to various aspects of the situation as limbo. But even before the current situation, we can find the entrenched usage of the word almost everywhere, from literature to politics to the ways in which we describe our own psychological states. But I think we can agree that when we use most words, we are insufficiently aware of their full baggage. This is especially true when, in our secularized context, we use concepts with religious connotations. Could you talk a little bit about this process of secularization and what you mean by it so that we can better understand the gap between religiously charged concepts and their modern applications? Uh, yes, one more wonderfully dense question here. Um, let me again, or let me start here, however, by uh, quickly explaining what, what limbo is, because I think that not all people still remember or still know what limbo is. So limbo is, is a place in the afterlife. Actually, it's two places. You have either the limbo of the fathers and then you have the limbo of the children. Now, the limbo of the fathers is supposed to be the place where all the virtuous people went after they had died, who had lived before Christ had come to earth. And in fact, as Christian theology teaches, man is loaded or is buried with original sin and only baptism can remove this weight of original sin. And if you still have original sin, then you can only go to hell, because only without original sin you can go to heaven. So the virtuous people who hadn't had the chance to be baptized, Christ hadn't been born yet, they were supposed to go to hell according to this teaching or to this theological understanding. Now the church fathers and the theologians obviously realized that something was wrong. These were very virtuous people. How could they be sent to hell even if they hadn't had the, the opportunity to be baptized as Christ hadn't come to earth. So they kind of in, invented uh, this new place. They sent them to limbo. This place was originally considered to be uh, at the limits of hell. It was the limbus, but later it became an individual place. Or better, it became, like I said, two places, one of them being the limbo of the fathers and the other being the limbo of the children, where the children who, were, who had died but hadn't been baptized or the dead feti went also here because they hadn't received baptism and so they were still loaded with original sin. So they couldn't go to heaven. But also for these kids, it would obviously have been hard to send them to hell. So also for them, they created a special place in the afterlife and this was the limbo of the children. So this basically in two words, the theology of limbo. Now again, let me try to respond to your question in a couple of steps. So um, yes, limbo is very frequently used today. And when I started working on this project, I was absolutely not expecting this. In fact, it was by sheer coincidence that I stumbled on this topic. I was working on hell and then suddenly there was this thing limbo, which I hadn't heard of for such a long time. But whilst I was doing my reading, I discovered in fact that whole movies, series and all types of books, especially healthcare books or books on immigration and international politics, but also video games, they mentioned the name limbo often and often and often. 
but this holds actually this holds not just for limbo this holds for for all the aspects of the afterlife there is an enormous amount of literature that uses this terminology and is it is indeed very surprising how in what we call is our secular age this the the ideas and the concepts of the afterlife are so often and so frequently used so this is already a, a somewhat problematic about the whole concept of secularization. But before I go there, there is one more thing I think I, I need to say. Now, you correctly say that when we use certain words, we are not using them in accordance, we are, or we are not always using them in accordance or in correspondence with their full meaning. And you're absolutely right. But I don't think this is uh, very problematic or said it's not necessarily a problem. At times it is a problem, but at times, other times, there is also a solution that comes almost automatically uh, again, or it comes back. And, and I think this is one of those ironies of history in a linguistical way. Anyway, I consider language to be somewhat of a, a living being. And I would even go so far to say that it is an independent living being. And, and by that, I mean that the history of language is not necessarily the same as that of language's usage. And, and I'm a huge fan of Roland Barthes' speculation that language, at least some of the most important and sociologically uh, important concept of language, they kind of remember their own meaning, and, and especially the ones that have been forgotten. And at certain times, they throw that ancient meaning back in our face, and, and we are hardly ever expecting this. And so language itself, uh, reminds us of, of the history of certain words that are very important. And I could give an, a number of examples here. One example is crisis, but I'm not going to get into that. Another one could be revolution. But I think, considering that you're asking me to talk a bit about secularization, I think it would make more sense to use the word and or the concept of secularization to make this point of what one could call the revenge of language itself. Now, I presume we, we all know what is understood by secularization today. It, it is some sort of, uh, one could call it, historical hermeneutics or even a historical narrative that attempts to demonstrate that the Western world has transited from being a profoundly religious world into being a world, a secular world, where religion is no longer of the same profound and predominant importance. In fact, the secular world is, in fact, to be understood as the world where, especially in the public sphere, religion has gone away. The public sphere has been emptied of religiousness. So this is the more general understanding of secularization. And there are more radical versions of this narrative as well, where religion is not just being driven away from the uh, public space, but is also uh, actually being pushed away as it is to be considered as something very negative. Or there are more interesting theories, at least for me, interesting theories of, of secularization, like, for example, the one proposed by Charles Taylor, where he says that, yes, on the one hand, there is this diminishing uh, presence of, of traditional religiousness in the public space, but at the same time, there are new forms of religiousness that are rising. And so this is a, a less harsh understanding of secularization. But anyway, secularization as a theory just, just talks about a historical decline of religiosity. Now, what is generally not told about the whole concept of secularization is that this word is not a new word. And this word, just like the word crisis or the word revolution, has an ancient old history. And interestingly speaking, its historical meaning is pretty different 
than its current understanding. And here we find what I think an interesting analogy between the understanding of crisis and secularization. Both concepts, concepts, like I already explained before with crisis, had a very different meaning and understanding than the one they have today and then how it is used today. Anyway, to stick to secularization, the ancient understanding of secularization did not regard a decline of religion in the world, but it actually meant its exact opposite. Secularization was understood as the entrance of religion in the world. A simple example here about uh, the names of different, and, and a simple example here that, that can be easily understood by many, and it regards the name of, of the different medieval priests in the Christian or Catholic religion. So in the Middle Ages, you had two distinct types of priests. On the one hand, you had the regular clergy, the Ordo Regularis, and they were the clergy who lived withdrawn. They were the ones who lived in their monasteries. They were the monks. But besides the regular clergy, you also had what was known as the secular clergy, the Ordo Secularis. And they were the normal parish priests. Sometimes they were also known as the canons. Now, the concept of secularization, as it was already used in, medi in medieval times, but also in, in ancient times, was used to explain the reduction of not was used not to explain the reduction of religious presence in the world, but was meant to explain the uh, the change of of habit, as one can say, between these two different priests. So the secular the, the the whole idea of secularization was a regular priest becoming a simple secular priest. That is a monk who stopped being a monk. But he went into the world and become and became a simple, uh, simple parish priest. So this was the idea behind secularization. That is, he left this monk. He left his secluded monastery and he entered into the world, becoming a normal parish priest, where he lived with the normal, regular citizens. Now, secularization just meant the entry of religion into the world, rather than the exclusion of religion from the world. Now, as you can see, this is the very opposite meaning of what secularization means today. And these are the ironies of history that I like so much. And we invent these incredible theories with the first test right, but with the first test right, then, then they collapse like this whole theory about secularization. But anyway, two things remain to be said here to respond as, as fully as, as possible on your question. The first thing is that I think opposing today's understanding of secularization with the understanding of the past, trying to make this last one prevail of the former, is pointless. So I don't think we need to combat this new understanding of secularization. Language changes and words change their meaning, and we don't need to necessarily combat this. We just need to be aware that words have different meanings as well. Secondly, however, if language is indeed like what I proposed in the beginning, this autonomous historical being, then first of all, the old meanings will return in the new one. And this they also do regarding the understanding of secularization. And, and this is, again, very ironical. But if one reads most of the books who proclaim to be a new who, or, or who propose a new form of secular world, they are basically proposing a new religion or a new faith. You have these books called The Faith of the Faithless or Secular Faith. And so basically, in, instead of being of, of trying to get rid of religion, they just propose a whole new religion. And this is this is one of those those 
means, I think, how history comes back and, and sometimes even bites one in the ass. But uh, so secularization is not about the downfall of religious faith for these people, but about the battle for religious faith. In a certain sense, it's basically Protestants against Catholics or Maoists against Leninists. And secondly, then, and I think this is much more important um, than this battle of faith, is that the most important thing has been missed in this discussion about secularization. The, the whole question about it is not about the historical hermeneutics, I think, but it is about a structural one. Some concepts are, I think, fundamentally religious, whether one likes this or not, and no historical change will make this uh, differ. And I think this holds for the majority of concepts that have always been at stake with the question of secularization. For example, you can't understand politics without understanding religion, but you also can't understand religion without understanding politics. This was so in the past, for example, with politics and religion, because most politics were religious, most political decisions were also religious decisions. And I think this is also still the case today. Not because political decisions are still religious decisions, but because political decisions and religious, religious, religion, religious, sorry, religious decisions are structurally connected. And you can't understand one without the other. You can wish and hope that both are no longer structurally connected, but that would be dreaming in colors. It looks very pretty, but it's still a dream. And in the end, you will be at the losing side of this equation as you will not understand half about what is going on in politics on one hand or in religion on the other. And you will not be able to grasp it in the meaning of you will not be able to get it under control. Basically, you will have no control of what is going on. And this is, I think, also what is happening today. It has been going on already since the 18th century, but it has been ever more clear in the past decades. And in these past few weeks, I believe, with the basic survival having become unjustly a matter of public deciding, the lack of knowledge and control of the religious undertones of politics, I think, has, has become incredibly clear. Anyway, as for the non-awareness of the meaning of limbo, I think sometimes I think something very similar is also happening here with limbo as with secularization. So even if there is this lack of knowledge or full understanding of the word limbo in the present usage, the language, the, the linguistic concept itself, however, maintains and remains remembers its full meaning. And in the end, the structural operativity of the word remains fully valid, even if it is used by somebody who has no idea what he's talking about, or at least he has no idea the, what the full meaning of the words is that he is using. So I, I wouldn't think that this is too bad if we don't know the full understanding of the word. So, 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 so going back to limbo, you say that limbo has always been a possible theological hypothesis rather than attaining the status of dogma. So here we are not interested in the existential nature of limbo, but in its functionality. You do not understand limbo as an empty signifier, quite the contrary. To you, limbo is actually taking place in the here and now, and you invite us to take it seriously. And as you put it, I quote, living in perennial crisis is analogous to living in limbo. In other words, we could say that perennial crisis is a secularized version of limbo. Would you like to elaborate on this? Yes, uh, well, historically and theologically speaking, limbo never made it uh, into the series of dogmas, contrary to heaven, hell and purgatory. And especially this, this last, this 
this last term, purgatory, is interesting because it emerged at the same time as limbo, at the end of the 12th century. But already by the middle of the 13th century, the Catholic Church had accepted it as a dogma. And by that, I mean that it was considered as a real place. This never happened for limbo. No official acceptance was ever made for these areas of the beyond, where either the unbaptized dead infants or the dead fetai went, or the virtues who had lived before the coming of Christ. Now, the, the lack of dogmatic status of limbo, however, it's, it's, it's not relevant today, and it wasn't relevant for in, in the medieval world either. Um, but for me, and more importantly, or for my understanding of the concept of limbo, I'm not so particularly interest, interested in the historical aspect. Um, I obviously studied limbo historically, but that merely because I wanted to know as much as I needed to know to be able to write a book about it. But the concept of limbo for me is not the importance of this concept. It's not, in, it's not to be found in its history and, and neither in its difficult theological or uh, battle with, with dogma, dogmatics or not. For me, like I said also before, for me, the importance is the structural operativity of the word. And, and it is this structural operativity that I find indeed present in limbo, as it is also present in the idea of perennial crisis. As I already said, the perennial crisis is a paradox, but also limbo is a paradox. And it is so for the following reasons. Now, if one thinks, for example, of the punishment in the afterlife, one obviously thinks of hell. Now, there are two different forms of punishment in hell. You have either the physical torture, but there's also the punishment that was intended to, to be you not being in the presence of God. This was called in medieval language, the, the lack of the beatific vision. You didn't see God, you weren't in God's presence and you didn't enjoy uh, in God's beauty and, and his goodness. Now in antiquity and in the Middle Evil times, this lack of beatific, visions was, of beatific vision was considered as the worst of all punishments. Now if one looks at the status of limbo, well neither the fathers nor the infants were physically punished. They were however also in the condition of this lack. Considering that they had never done any personal sin, this meant so that they didn't receive physical punishment. But considering that they still had original sin, this meant that they were still submitted to the punishment of the lack of beatific vision. But how paradoxical is it not that you have no personal sin, and the only reason why you did not receive baptism did not even depend on your own decision, Christ hadn't been born yet, or you simply weren't old enough to make the decision to be baptized. But nevertheless, what you received was the harshest of all punishment. Well, if this isn't a paradox, then I don't know anymore. So limbus, limbo and crisis share, first of all, this paradoxical state, but they share much more. Now, now this is probably not the, moment, the correct moment to dig deeper into all these shared paradoxes, also because it gets somewhat complex. But in my book, I ended up by listing five structural convergences, or you can call them analogies as well, in both the paradox of limbo and that of the perennial crisis. And I thought that this discovery indeed justified me to state that our modernity, that our modernity, that is perenniality in crisis, is indeed pretty darn similar as to the state in which the unborn fetai or the non-baptized children lived. So that, I think that was the decision why I, I said those things. So, uh, limbo, just like modernity, has perennial crisis. Is this eternal suspension of the present? I quote you here: "Limbo is not about lasting forever. It is about not having an end. In limbo, ending has come to an end itself. 
It is like modernity's present, procrastinated indefinitely. Limbo simply is endless. Uh, and you emphasize that this is the very nature of our present life here on Earth. So how can we get out of this fool's paradise, as you call it, surely not by uh, indecisiveness and inaction? Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about what you call the experience of liberation, or as you define it, the eternal deferral of the present, and how this relates to the deciding aspects of the crisis. Uh, well, yes. Of, of the five regions in the beyond, only purgatory is temporal. That is, it has a beginning and an end. All the others uh, last indefinitely. Heaven is forever, but hell and limbo are endless. Uh, the punishing condition of these states makes for it that they are not considered as being forever, but merely as lacking an ending. So it makes it a little bit more, more dark and negative for these people who live there. And, and I think this is very similar again to the intention of modernity's perennial state of crisis. Only in modernity, in fact, could one come up with the idea that history had come to an end or that history had finished, as Fukuyama said a couple of a couple of years ago, almost two decades by now. Now, as I said before, the lastingness of a crisis uh, can be caused by two things. The crisis itself, it being particularly complex, but also by us, by us people, by men. Our lack of participation in our explicit stalling of the shifting or of the deciding or of the judging that is required to resolve a crisis. We are too much in love with our presence, with how it is today. People talk more and more about society speeding up, and this cannot be completely ignored. But to me, it seems that this speeding up is merely to be able to stay at the same place. It's, it's like being in a treadmill. And this is also very visible today in, in our pandemic. The only thing we want to do is go back to normality, to our lives as we lived it up until the day before this pandemic started. Anyway, if we look at, at modernity's crisis, I, and, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm only kicking, I think, open an, an already open door when I say that this is indeed the last aspect, man's reluctance to resolve the crisis that has made our period recognizable as perennial crisis. If anything, Every time that we have been confronted by a crisis, the only decision that is taken is the one to not decide. And, and this was particularly clear with the last financial crisis, I think, but it's also very clear today. Uh, now, if I take the example of the financial crisis, there's this wonderful work by the German scholar Wolfgang Strick, who wrote a book that he cunningly entitled Buying Time. And his thesis was that instead of resolving the financial crisis, those who had to decide simply bought time. They stalled. They attempted merely to put things back in their place from before the meltdown, turning one watch back a little bit, hoping that nobody had seen it. But this obviously doesn't resolve anything. And, and anyway, so our only decision today, and, and, and I return to this because I think this is important and this comes back all over again, our only decision that we make today is the one to not decide. And this is always dressed in an awful lot of words. And that is what I try to capture with the neolog neologism of logoration. It is this logoreic talking of the one who has nothing to say, but who says it in such a way as if he is resolving uh, every problem of the world. All expressions are in the style of performative language, those linguistic expressions that should be confirmed by an actual something happening, but that often, or especially today, that often are not confirmed by this. Uh, but that is obviously 
still the case today. Anyway, again today in our pandemic times, one sees this constantly happening again. Our political and medical leaders are constantly on television. They are constantly making statements. But what they say one day is dismissed the next day. And they are constantly making decisions that are basically non-decisions because the next day they take a decision that contradicts the decision that they took the day before. And the only thing we feel in all this is just that time slows down. And like you quoted me, the eternal of the present is the thing that is happening. It's the moment of deciding that is being pushed away and that is taking away our the, the normal velocity of our time. So thank you, Christoph. Uh, talking about the temporal spatial operations of the concept of crisis, you emphasize the time experience as thick and contracting, while the spatial experience is a kind of extension. In this sense, you tell us that crisis works like a virus. It spreads like a disease. Here you remind us of another Greek concept, namely pharmacon, understood as an artificial remedy that might cause an aggravation of a disease rather than curing it. Is solving a crisis really as simple as taking a pill? Uh, <laughs> if a mere pill was the solution, that would be lovely. But unfortunately, I, I don't think it isn't. But anyway, the concept of the pharmacon is indeed how you say it, uh, it and how we basically understand the concept of vaccine today. It's a bit of poison that is inserted in you to make you immune. Now, obviously, medically speaking, having a vaccine, vaccine is good, especially today it would be a lovely thing. But imagine if you would have had the vaccine after 10 days, all that, all that has happened afterwards, the complete chaos that followed, the clear evidence that we were not prepared, and also the exaggerated measures taken by the governments, basically of putting the whole world in a lockdown after they had derided the virus for a while, installing false hope in people. Anyway, all of this would not have been evident if there was an immediate vaccine, an immediate pharmacon. To say it probably somewhat too harshly, the vaccine would only have cured or protected us from the virus. It wouldn't have cured our society and it wouldn't have cured the narratives and it wouldn't have cured the social relationships that seem to be in a much more perilous situation than the mere biological one. So if we would have had a pill, it would have been much more negative for our society, although it would obviously have saved a lot of lives. Now, the point, however, is that we should be aware of not simply curing the symptoms, and, and often the pharmacon just cures the symptoms, and, but that helps very little. And, and then it's, it's in this non-helping pharmacon, that is obviously what I understand as the logoration or the non-deciding decisions. They are merely curing some of the symptoms of our current crisis modernity, buying just enough time. But the question is buying time for what? More of the same? Maybe I, that's not so desirable. Thank you very much, Christoph, for this thought-provoking interview. I think you really offered a valuable perspective on the concept of crisis, on how it is used and misused in our contemporary discourse, and how, going back to the concept of limbo, we discover a new way of thinking about the times and conditions we are living through. Well, that <coughs> means uh, we've reached the end of another Picked Voices episode. Thank you all for tuning in, and we hope to challenge you with another one of our podcasts soon. As always, our biggest hope is to welcome you face-to-face -face again as soon as possible. Until that can happen...